the mic a event music podcast series hosted by me freddie cocker each pod i check in with artists across different music scenes in the uk and beyond we discuss their musical journeys their artistry and most importantly the person behind the mic my special guest for this episode of behind the mic is harry from dream pop band victors based in leeds victors have been putting out dreamy bangers since around 2015 in this BTM episode, we discuss the journey of Victors, the class divided music, the streaming wars and the impact it has on artists' mental health, fear of missing out and much more. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Victors. Harry, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out of your busy weekend to chat to me. I know it is during second lockdown, but I'm sure you have a busy schedule anyway. First off, I know things are a bit crap right now coming up to Christmas. No seshes, no Christmas boogies, no gigs. But how are you coping, mate, and how are you? I'm all right. Thanks for inviting me on here, by the way. I'm okay. It's such a weird time, isn't it? It doesn't fit. Like You don't have the Friday feeling anymore when it comes to a Friday and every day just runs into themselves. Like I, several times this week, I've had to check actually what day is it because I couldn't remember. Yeah, I'm doing all right. I've recently moved house. So just before this lockdown hit, I moved a bit closer in towards the city centre in Leeds. So I can now, I'm now like walking distance from everywhere. I was more out in the sticks and I was like, I'd have to get in my car and go if I wanted to go anywhere. And it, so now it's a bit nicer area to be able to live and just step outside and go walk places and it's just a new environment you know which is always good for for your headspace really because I'd got sort of a bit fed up of where I was at and because we were months into lockdown and all this COVID business and stuff and so I just thought I needed the change for my general health really and, and creativity because I'd realised that I, I couldn't write I couldn't do anything I couldn't get into a creative space so I was like right I'm gonna make a change so yeah I'm doing okay it means that yeah, I'm, I'm living with some new people, so it's a it's a completely new environment. So it just keeps you sort of stimulated, you know, and uh, lots of Netflix, as I think everybody else is doing. I'm a religious Huddersfield Town fan, and you are a big Leeds fan. So I hope this pod is showing that football rivalries aren't everything in life. Maybe ninety percent of it. <laughs> yeah, I would. I did not appreciate your tweet about Leeds earlier. I must say, like I think. I think we'd just been introduced to each other. Then I saw that tweet. I was like, I'm not going to do this podcast anymore. <laughs> Sometimes I do have a habit of putting my foot in it, especially when it comes to football. <laughs> well, it's football. You've got to let it go. It's fine. Right. We've got that out of the way. Shall we crack on, mate? Let's kick off the pod by talking about your journey with Victor's, Harry. But before we do that, why don't you tell me how your love affair with music started? So who are some of your artists that you listened to growing up? What impact did they have on you and your mental health? And maybe who got you into music in the first place and kind of producing or writing or playing instruments? I come from a very musical family. There's always been music playing during my childhood. My dad would always like get us tickets to go to gigs. And some of my earliest memories of my dad playing guitar just in the house or he's had like several times where he's been doing little tiny gigs with his friends and stuff really it's just been instilled with me from the beginning really my mum isn't into the playing music side of things but has got like a really amazing she's into so much music she's like I've been brought up on like Led Zepp and stuff that was one of my mum's favorite bands when she was growing up and my granddad has got like a mass collection of vinyls so I'd go through them it's just always been there you know it was never like a a beginning where I discovered music. It's just I've been surrounded by it since from the very start. I've been brought up on Counting Crows, Crowded House, The Beatles. My dad's a massive Beatles fan, but who isn't? Who hasn't been brought up listening to the Beatles at some point? Fleetwood Mac, Van Morrison. It's just it's, honestly, I've been. It's just been there all the time. I couldn't pinpoint a start, you know. And what age were you when you first picked up an instrument or instruments? And what effect did that have on you and your mental health? Reflecting on that journey now. There's pictures of me being about three or four with like a, a toy guitar. Obviously, I wasn't playing anything of merit, but like three or four. And I can remember, I, my, I think my first official learning an instrument, I think my mum and dad got me piano lessons at about six years old. Mental health wise, it's always been that has always become a thing that I've just done all the time as like an outlet. Always been playing music, listening to music. So I read somewhere that 
anybody can sing it just depends on how long you've been using your vocal cords for so that it's just a matter of training and i would say that because I, the reason I can sing is because of listening to these albums and growing up with these albums as a kid and just singing along. You know, like I can remember being like four, five, six years old in the family car driving to my grandparents or something because they lived down south and just having these albums like Counting Crows, August and Everything After or like Woodface by Crowded House and just singing along to these at such a young age. And I think I honestly believe that that's probably the reason why I can sing now. It's thanks to those albums and being surrounded by it. So mental health-wise, it's where my outlet began. Just tell me how Victor's came about now. First off, where did the name come from and who started it in the first place? Was it your baby? Yes, I would say, I'd say, like, I can confidently say it was me that started it. Basically, I was at school and it was coming to the point where we were finishing sixth form. So you need to sort of think about what you're doing with your life after school, whether it's uni or whatever. And I was in a band and the guys that I was in a band with didn't really want to take it any further. They just wanted to go to uni. That, that's fair enough. But I wanted to see where I could go with it. You know, I wanted to see if there was anything that if I could make a living out of just playing, writing songs and playing them live to people and releasing. So I, me and my friend put adverts up online for guitarists wanting stuff. It was simple, simple as that. And we were actually looking for a bassist and we found Simon, who's the guitarist now in Victor's. We literally just messaged him just saying, Hey, name's Harry. Do you want to meet up and we'll talk about if you want to be in the band, what music you want to play, whatever. So we literally just met in a bar in Leeds and just sat down and talked for two, three hours. And that was the start of Victor's. Like, literally, the name wasn't there yet, but we we had the band and we were just trying to get members, really. He eventually went on guitar, did Simon. I was a singer. We had a drummer. And we were like, right, we need a bass player. Dom then found us on Facebook through another advert we'd put out there months before. And it just came together like that. It sounds a bit sort of like a modern era of how to make a band. But yeah, it was, we met online, basically. It was just complete luck that we clicked as people, as well as just being interested in music. Because that's the, the side that people who are in the music industry and in a band don't understand. It's not just a case of finding a band member it's about finding someone who's on your wavelength who is into the kind of music you want to do who is about who is up for giving it their all and just putting everything else in their life on hold to do this and and basically you have to be friends yeah you can argue and stuff like that like everybody does but you have to really get on you have to be brothers in a sense and that's the hardest part it's you're finding three four five however many people you want to share your dream with so it's a lot harder than people would just think of like oh yeah that guy plays bass or that guy plays drums you know it's it's really hard and the name it's uh you want a romantic story of how we came up with the name but there really isn't one it was just a case of we were writing a, our first track and we were in the studio I think and we still didn't have a name and we needed to create Facebook and uh, Instagram and all that and we had all these names flying about and we just didn't like them we knew we wanted one name, just one word. We had thought about the somethings, but there's loads of that. We wanted just one word, and we didn't like any of the names we had. And then I think Simon was watching Made in Chelsea one night, and there was a girl or something on there called Victoire or something like that. And Simon had the idea that, oh, wouldn't it be cool maybe if we had a female name as the name of the band? But then we thought, well, maybe, yeah, but then it'll just sound like a female artist. <laughs> so we were like, okay, so, and then he went to bed thinking of Victor's, and he put it to us and we all hated it and then we, and then for some reason it stuck for and that was it <laughs> so it's literally there's no it wasn't written in the stars it wasn't you know what I mean it was just we thought of it we didn't like it we went with it and there it is and for anyone who isn't aware of Victor's mate how would you describe your sound the alt pop scene more widely and the music you make we started off as very much a guitar band with just the odd synth in there just to give it a bit of atmosphere but over the years, we've really gone heavily into the electronic side whilst also still playing guitars and piano and stuff like that. We've sort of struggled over the last few years of trying to figure out what it is we play. And we've sort of landed on in the last year, dream pop, something like that. That's kind of how we decide it. it's got its sort of atmospheric -y, but then with catchy hooks, you know, in the choruses and stuff. We spoke about this off air, mate, as I know how much you get asked this question. So I'll get it out of the way now. The first album from the 1975, in many ways, probably sparked this dream pop, alt-pop scene into life seven or eight years ago. I think I was in my first year at uni. How much inspiration for your sound did you take from them originally? 
and how important have they been for the scene more generally, both in the UK and the US? I think you can only like what you're listening to and what you're into at the time. Of course, you're going to take influence because how can you not? If it's something that you just absorb and take in because you love it, how are you not then going to write a similar way to that and yeah that album I think was influential to every band forming around that time and that is pretty much the time we were forming like I think that album came out in 2013 I think it was and we were starting Victors in like 2014 2015 and that album had blown up and it was the biggest thing and it was this sound that no band had it taken away from the it sort of gone away from the indie jangly guitars to more electronic we were listening to that at the time so earlier on in that if you listen to victors it's very much that first album sounding which i think if you find bands releasing music in 2015 2016 you'll find most sound like the self-titled album of 1975 it just is it was huge wasn't it absolutely and i remember seeing them at festival in 2013 and they were in a middle-sized tent and it was just overflowing by so many because it was just so popular, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we I think you said you were in your first year at uni, so I think I was in my last year of sixth form. Um, one of my friends was in a band and he came to me and was just like, oh, we're supporting this band. Uh, I've never heard of them, but they're up and coming called 1975. And nobody would heard of them. They hadn't released the album yet. Chocolate hadn't come out yet. It was out on, I think it was out on SoundCloud. Do you know what I mean? It was like when they were releasing their EPs all the time. So I went to see them because I was friends with them. I was friends with my the guys from school. So I saw 1975 for five quid in a 200 capacity room about three or four months before they blew up. And yeah, it was packed, but it was only 200 people, you know. it was. So I saw Matt Healy on that stage. Like, well, I met him. I shook his hand afterwards. But this was before he was Matt Healy that everybody knows, you know. But what does get a bit frustrating about it is nowadays any band that is maybe four guys play guitar and sing but have a bit of piano and electronic side as soon as that is what you are immediately you get compared to Nights of Five and it's like they didn't invent that sound they've also taken that sound from the 80s and stuff you know and Phil Collins if you listen to some of their songs it sounds like Genesis you know and Huey Lewis and stuff like that so it's like they didn't invent it. They've just made it their own. So that, that that's one of the frustrations that's come out of it. Like, oh, just because we have four guys, guitars, and with synths doesn't, do you know what I mean? <laughs> For sure. The alt-pop scene, or dream-pop scene, however you want to call it, is putting out so much unbelievable music at the moment, mate. It's almost a joke. So I'm going to list a batch of bands for the listeners, alongside Victors that are killing it, that you should go and discover. So LAMY, Nightly, Great Good, Fine OK, Honestly, Fickle Friends, Limo, The Wildlife, Joan... Hotel Patchy, Coin, Floor, The Ace, I could go on and on and on. For you, Harry, do you take any inspiration from any bands in that scene, whether as a support network or just as your sound generally? Yeah, 100% you do. I, I like to write music that I would listen to myself, and I listen to those bands. A couple of years ago, I was a big fan of Fickle Friends, went to see them a few times live in Leeds. Yeah, of course you do. You write what you know and what you like to listen to, so that's what comes out, you know. And have you found the scene as an environment to be quite supportive and to allow you to be open about your mental health? And do bands support each other in that way? Does the fact that the lyrics a lot of you discuss are quite open and expressive help you in that way or not? Yeah, of course I do. I'm the main lyric writer in the band. Simon can do the music and the others can do the music, but I'm the one that actually comes up with the stories, you know, and something to say. And I use it often as an outlet of like, yeah, like once... If you, if you do read into our lyrics, they are extremely open. Just like, yeah, completely like, this is how it is. This is how I'm feeling. Yeah, heart on your sleeve kind of lyrics. So that does help me because it just yeah, it means you're sharing, sharing it out, you know. I find the, the industry and stuff, it, it can be supportive. It can, and, and then there's also the not-so-supportive side. So like you mentioned Patawawa, they're like the nicest people. I've ever met on tour you know because we played with them a couple of times that is a very as an example of the very much supportive side of it where yeah they talk to you they get on I think our drummer actually played for them as a session musician they needed a drummer our drummer Leon jumped in for them and played for them for a couple of shows I think so that's the supportive side of it but then there's the other other side where you get the competitive side of where sometimes you might be gigging with the band and you don't talk to each other and it's very sort of like oh we're cooler than you kind of thing or whatever 
it's very rare. It's not all the time, and often it's more like how it was with Patuara and stuff, but there's both sides, basically, you know. Tell me the story about the first Victor's set now, and walk me through the mental process. You know, how did you feel before the gig, that moment when you were in full flow on stage, and then the aftermath in Dolphin Rush? Uh, I can remember it. It was, well, with this lineup with Dom as the bass player and stuff. Yeah, we were playing in a tiny little room in Leeds called Oporto. Probably hold, I think, capacity is probably of that room back then, probably about 70, 80, you know, like tiny little room. Yeah, you're nervous as hell because it was like, yeah, I've deferred my uni place to do this, you know, and not that everybody cares, but everybody knows that you've gone off to be in a band and then suddenly like, this is your first gig. It's, it's a moment where you're putting yourself out there completely open for anybody to come and to either support you or take the mic or do you know I mean whatever yeah it's a moment where you're completely exposed so yeah of course it was nervous as hell but the endorphin rush is why you do it isn't it really I I, there's nothing I couldn't really describe it to anyone who hasn't really experienced it but the endorphin rush of when you come off stage having just done a really good show obviously back then it was not to many people but over the years we've played to loads of people like we've done shows to thousands at a time and stuff and the endorphin rush is why you do it. Yeah, of course, that then goes to help your mental health. You're just full of of just joy. This is what I've been doing since I was a little kid, you know, and it's why you do it. Every band will also have one, two, or even three bad sets in their career, Harry. Is there a story that you feel comfortable sharing with the listeners about it? And if so, more importantly on this podcast, what did you learn from that experience about yourself and the band? Every set you learn something. I'm not sure... If you've ever done anything musically or anything on stage or anything like that, but what you find is, and over the years of playing, is pretty much every show something goes wrong. Whether it be big or small, whether it be it stops the show, or whether it literally just be the fact that you dropped your guitar pick. Or do you know what I mean? So every show something happens. Sometimes it feels massive to you on stage that something has just gone wrong, but the audience might not even bloody notice it. You know, like. But like we have like a, me and Simon have like a running joke after a show. If, if for some reason nothing went wrong, the odd show that does happen where absolutely everything went smoothly. We have this running joke where we look at each other like, my God, nothing went wrong. That doesn't happen, you know. As for an example, yeah, there's one that was terrible. Basically, because of the music we play, it's very electronic as well as guitars and stuff. So on stage, I'll be playing piano and then I'll switch to a guitar. Simon's on guitar and a synth. Dom's on bass and a bass synth. And then Leon's on drums and a pad that he hits for samples. But then because our music's full of electronic sounds, we can't be always be playing everything. So we have a backing track as well that plays the little things that we can't play whilst we're doing other stuff. So basically, you have a laptop on stage that is set up through going through interfaces and stuff and it plays out and it's sort of connected to you and you've all got in ears and you can all hear it and stuff. And we had a show in Leeds. It was our headline show. And obviously, when you're using a computer, you need it to be charged. So obviously, you have it on charged whilst it's on stage. But between sound check and us going on somebody must have knocked the charger out because you know with max they're like magnetic it's not like a plug-in which again i think is a very bad <laughs> a bad thing about max is that you can't it's, it can just be knocked out without you even realizing but without us knowing through for the couple of hours since we'd been on stage to sound check the, the computer had slowly been running out of charge and we have a intro track which we're not on stage somebody starts it on the laptop and then we walk on to it so there's like a big intro music and we walk on it's just a bit it's a bit grander you know it makes it seem a bit more professional and so that started and for some reason it was doing it in like like it was in slow-mo like somebody had slowed down the music and it was because the it was on like one percent and the the computer was dying basically we're like all ready to go on stage and we can just hear this and it's not right so i had to go on stage and set up the laptop from scratch whilst the crowd is all waiting for us it was just an absolute nightmare i was like because at the time you don't know what the problem is so i'm walking on things i didn't know it was as simple as the charger's not in you're going into it like my god what the hell's going on how am I going to fix this? I don't know. Like, I know how to set it up, but I don't know if there's anything truly wrong with it. I don't know how to fix that. 
Uh, eventually, managed to just like obviously put the charger back in and saw that it was on like one percent. I was like, right, well, that's it. And I had to set this whole thing up. Whilst there's people who have paid money to come and see us, and we're just wait, and they're just waiting. They can see me, and I'm saying it was just the most stressful situation I've ever been in. I like came off shaking because I was because like, obviously your adrenaline's going. Then you're ready. You're about to go on stage. You're like hyped up, ready to go. You've been waiting hours to go on, and then suddenly you're faced with this problem. And uh, yeah, it was awful. Like I still have like ptsd thinking about that to be honest <laughs> but then there's other things that go wrong that are just so minimal like it was actually one of the last shows we did before lockdown we did a big headline show in in london and we sold that out and we came on everything was fine and then halfway through the first song dom's bass cuts out it was only for maybe 10 seconds and he managed to sort it out and it carried on and played the show perfectly throughout but for that 10 seconds it really shakes you you have to really recover from it but I've listened back to videos of that somebody's video, that part of the show, and you can't even tell that as an audience member, especially if you're not into music. I might have noticed being an audience member because I'm in a band. When I go to see bands, I don't just watch them play. I'm watching the equipment they're using and all this kind of stuff. So I might have noticed, but for any just normal punter, I just wouldn't have even realised, Joe. You know? And you learn that you have to just be resilient and just keep going. That's probably what you, and, and sort of just masking it and the show must go on kind of mentality. What does the stage provide for you and your mental health, Harry? Is it escapism? Is it a form of healing, something cathartic or even deeper than that? I'd say, yeah, it's, it's often a healing outlet for me. I found over the years of playing and writing and stuff is that often once I've written about something that I've been through or done or whatever I'm over it now that I've written about it so say maybe I'm singing maybe about a heartbreak or something bad that I did wrong that I treated someone badly once it's out there for people to interact with and relate to themselves it's no longer just my issue it's now just out there shared and I can sort I sort of get over it in that way it's quite weird I never thought that that's how it would work for me but it's like yeah once I've written about something and then put it in a song it's now I'm over it basically there's some songs that i'm writing which is about some very personal things that i've been through in the in the past and stuff but now when i'm singing it it's just words in a sense it's just like it's now no longer a problem one thing you wanted to discuss when we spoke off air mate is the streaming wars and the impact it has on musicians livelihoods and their mental health i saw a funny but parody tweet from one of my favorite uh, grind producers phase miyaki who said that spotify is the only company in the world who pays people by shillings. That was quite a funny tweet. And I, I retweeted that because it was so accurate. Can you elaborate on this aspect a bit more and what impact it has on your mental health and then other artists you know? Yeah, I did see that tweet. Yeah, I think I must have seen it because you retweeted it. It made me giggle, but also cr- like tear up because <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, it has a massive effect on your mental health. Like, I think Spotify pays you 0.004p a stream. People always ask me when they see me, like if it's like an old friend or whatever, and they say, "You must be doing really well." Like, I've seen the amount of streams you've got because we've got million, we've got millions of streams online. You must be doing really well. Da, 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 da. You must be earning a bit of cash from this now. Da, da. It's like, no, <laughs> like we we do earn money, but it goes straight back into the band. I don't personally make it, you know. Like occasionally you can do, but like because it's so little. And I understand why it is, but it's also when you've got two million streams on a song and that's a huge achievement, isn't it? When you really think about it, if you add all those people in one place, two million people, that's a that's a hell of a lot. But it doesn't earn you as much as you think. And yeah, of course, that can have effect on your mental health. And it means that artists these days can't necessarily make a living just like that from it. It takes millions and millions of streams for it. And remember, if you're a band, there's four of you and then there's your manager and then there's like your booking agent and then it's all these people it needs to pay. And yeah, of course it does, because you're just not getting paid. And it's not the the money isn't the reason why you do it, but it's all you are trying to make a living. You know, another thing about the stream as well is that it can affect your mental health in how the, the constant checking of your monthly listeners and what you find as well is like you'll release a song and your monthly listeners will go up. And you're like, oh, my God, we're going to make it off this one song. We've just gone up by 20,000 monthly listeners in, in a couple of days. Oh, my God, like, this is happening. And I remember we released our first song tonight. 
and and then a couple more songs and for a couple of months like yeah we had a few thousand streams and then i think we got played on a i think it was a is it monday night football in america the nfl show we got played on that like our song was played during like a break or whatever we didn't know about it we got tweeted by some american fan tweeted us saying oh my god victors were on monday night football or whatever and overnight our monthly listeners went from like 10,000 monthly listeners to 200,000 just like that but that's because you just got that little bit of exposure and then it slowly drips back down again drips back down again this monthly listeners thing is great because you can see where you're at and you can evaluate how much of an effect our EP had and how much of an effect did this single have and oh we played a tour our monthly listeners have gone up a little bit but it also it fluctuates and it just goes back down and back up and, back, and you compare yourself to other bands. At one point, a couple of years ago, I, I would be comparing myself to all the bands. and It's not healthy, you know. It's not it's constant comparison and worry that it's going. And like right now, our month listeners is dropping because of this time, because we haven't been able to play live, because we haven't been able to get in the studio and record. And that will change. I've now matured having, over the past few years, been doing this. I have matured a bit and I realised, like, yeah, it does because it has an effect on on what you're doing at the time. And right now we're not because we can't. And that's not our fault. But we'll release it. We're, we've got in the plans, we've got a big EP coming up and we're going to get in the studio to record that. And once that comes out, our monthly listeners will shoot straight back up again. It really does take a toll because it's like the constant comparison and worrying. And why is it dropping? What can we possibly do to make it rise again? And that's another negative of the streaming and the being able to evaluate straight away figures online and stuff you know it's good to hear that despite that negative period of your mental health when it came to comparison culture that you're now in that positive place where you are in a perspective where you can say yes it's gone down now but it's going to come back up and we're confident that it'll come back up I still have my moments of being like oh why is it going down but like I've gotten out of the everyday daily checking and stuff you know and that's just not healthy at all not healthy like with anything in every single day do you know what i mean it can take its toll classism in the music industry is also something you wanted to discuss for it has existed as long as music's existed when it comes to your experience harry you said that you were quite fortunate in that your parents were able to support you at times when you decided to make the leap to do music full-time but for others they might not have that support did you recognize that privilege back then and, and how did it impact your mental health did it put you more at ease in giving music a go knowing you had that safety net 100 percent 100 percent yeah it was one of the reasons why i felt so confident in not going to uni and just getting a part-time job in a bar and just doing this music thing because i knew like my parents were so supportive of it my mum and dad have always like yeah they would love for me to go to uni and get a degree and they're very supportive in this that they knew that this was my in a sense calling to do this and at least give it a go and not be 35 and think oh why didn't i try I couldn't have done it without them, take that leap, without their support, without their financial support. They've helped me like when I've needed new equipment, when we've needed to pay for stuff for the band, and when we've needed to help rent vans, when I've needed to help me pay my rent. You know what I mean? They've helped me out constantly, and not everybody will have that. So like, I can't imagine doing that without having that support from my parents and my family as well I say my parents but it's not just my parents it's my grandparents it's my sister it's my cousin it's all of them and I've had that support like for example my cousin Jack sort of been brought up as more as a brother than a cousin because when you say cousin it's it doesn't sound as close but yeah he's pretty much my brother he comes to every single London show he lives in London every single London show we do he's there with either the same group of friends he comes with or he brings new people. You know what I mean, I've got that support constantly. And I think my, my sister was at uni in Newcastle and we did a little sort of stripped tour thing where we were just going around the unis and playing little stripped back sets. And she, like when we played in Newcastle, she brought all her friends. You know what I mean? That's a, and not everybody has this strong support, either just support or financial. I honestly don't think I could have done it without it. And so... Of course, classism comes into it because that will stop people from going ahead with it if they don't have that support, if their parents can't afford it or they don't have parents or you know I mean? if they just don't have that support bubble like I have. And maybe I didn't really appreciate it at the start when I was like 18, 19, just rearing a girl. But now I'm like in my mid 20s. It's like, yeah, there's, there's no way I could have done this without any of them. Let's talk about the Victor's discography in a bit more detail now. The first ever record you put out was a track called Tonight in 2016. 
How do you reflect on this track looking back? How did it come about? And are you as proud of it now as you were then? Yeah, tonight. Yeah, that was that was our first ever single. I thought it was an absolute banger of a track to say it was our first ever song. I couldn't like when we wrote it. I was like, bloody hell, we've done all right here. Yeah, of course. Going back to the when when I was talking about the first gig, it's the same thing of first releasing. It's a moment of putting yourself out there and being exposed and like, right, okay, this is what I've been doing. Listen to it now. Yeah, I'm super proud of it. It's maybe not how we would write songs now and the sound that we have anymore. And like, yeah, we do we we do try to sort of have elements of our earlier stuff come into the newer stuff just to sort of keep that running through. Yeah, I'm super proud of it. And like I said earlier, it got on that. Monday Night Football somehow and that is what really gave us this sort of secure start because we immediately had a fan base which is quite rare often friends of mine have like released songs and stuff and their first time they release they'll get a few thousand monthly listeners and they'll get some streams and stuff like that but then it will very gradually drop down to almost nothing again whereas because we got on that Monday Night Football because of tonight our first track it just shot up and then we've been left with this fan base mainly in America, but we have been left with it. And so we have this sort of foothold that we can sort of work back off since. And that was a couple of months into releasing you. And that's very lucky. You then put out two singles called Two Hearts and Feel. What do these tracks mean to you, the band and your mental health before we discuss the debut EP? Feel and Two Hearts were just a classic late teens growing up stories. Of like sex, partying, figuring out who you are. If you were to look into the lyrics, you can see that that's all it's about. It's obviously an 18, 19 year old writing it, you know, it's just that's because that's all your life is about at that time, isn't it? You know, it's about, yeah, partying, getting drunk, just going out on nights out. So that's what it's about. So it's a certain period of where we were at as a band, but it means a lot to the band because it's where we started. And we were sort of just like, just jumping on the back of what the success that Tonight had had, really. You put your debut EP out called Wish You Were Her in the same year. Now, I'm a Simpsons fanatic, so I immediately thought of a very obscure Simpsons joke where Homer gets a card for Marge and it says Wish You Were Her on it, so maybe that's just me. Um, (laughs) Tell me how this came about and how you felt in the run-up to the launch, when it was out there and the response you got, and was this a big moment in your life and the band's? Yeah, it was a big moment because all we'd released at that point was just singles, just one-off songs, Here's something we've been working on for a month, listen to it. Whereas now it was like, right, now we need to have a collection of songs and sort of needs to work together. And we weren't really thinking about it much. We were just like, let's just get some tunes out and put them out all at the same time, which has changed to how we work now. There's a lot more thought goes into what we release these days rather than just like, here's the most recent song we've written. Now it's more like, yeah, we've written this song, but is it right to release now? It might work better once we've got these other songs written. We weren't really thinking about it much in the sense of, like, how does this affect the band? We just knew that the producer we were working with at the time had just said, look, you can't do singles all the time. You need to release a collection of work. And, yeah, it's not really that deep. I'll go into it a little bit later on, but the more recent stuff we're writing now that we're going to release next year is a lot deeper, a lot, a lot more sort of thought and messages and a storyline kind of thing. Whereas it was literally just like, here's four songs we've written. and where we're at right now and we just need something other than singles really that's as deep as it really goes you put your second ep out called turn out the lights the year after how did you progress your sound from wish you were her to this record and what does this ep mean to you and your mental health turn out the lights was a bit more of an experimental phase within the band we'd changed drummers the drummer who i'd formed the band with who was my best friend he decided to leave it wasn't necessarily bad blood i just don't think he he just didn't want to do it anymore that's fair enough and we're still friends to this day he's in my lad group if you will and uh, yeah so we hang out all the time obviously not these days but we had a new drummer which immediately brings in it's a new brain it's a new person's ideas who has maybe a different style of playing and maybe into different kinds of music so Matty, the new drummer, he really brought in the more electronic sort of influences. And if you listen to it, you can really start to hear, yes, we're now going down this like different road of just trying other things out. And it's not necessarily what we do again. When I listen back to it, it's like, no, it's, it's okay. And I've, I've got to admit, when you said that we were going to talk about the discography, I actually had to go back myself and what was on that EP? Because <laughs> you know, like once, once it's out and like, I don't just sit there and listen to my own music, I love my music and I'm proud of it, but I actually had to go back and be like, oh, what the hell's on Turn Out The Lights again? 
But yeah, it's not necessarily what we do now again, but it's all a journey. And if we hadn't done that, I think some of the songs were very much on like electric drum pads and a lot more synths were coming in and it was too much, too many synths and stuff, but it's all a journey. So we couldn't be what we are now without having done that and made the mistakes or actually made the positives and come out and we'd learned more about electronic music and stuff. So it's again, it's not what we would do again, but we had to do that to get to where we're at now. I think that's kind of what Turn Out the Lights was for us, because then if you listen to our music after Turn Out the Lights, you'll know it's a big jump to what we are now. And it's like, right, yeah, we came out of that, doing that EP with a new idea. And I can remember there was a moment, I think we'd released Turn Out the Lights, or it was around that time, we played uh, Manchester Pride, and we've done a couple of them, and we played Manchester Pride. And have you heard of Shura? She went on after us. She borrowed my uh, guitar stand. So that's my claim to fame. So we played and we were like, yeah, we played class, da, 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 bigging ourselves up. And then she went on. And I can remember it was a moment we all just stood there and just watched and we were in awe. And we were like, oh my God, we need to step it up. Because if this is, she was already quite big at that point, but it's like, if, if this is what is, is successful, like we are nowhere near that. It was a bit sort of, I don't know, it was sort of like, we were just like, wow, sort of blown out of this, bigging each other up. And we're like, my God, we need to step it up. That was a huge moment. I remember looking around and the whole band was just like mouths open, just watching this artist just absolutely kill it on stage. And it was just such a level above that we were at. And it was sort of sobering to us. And that was the moment where we really stepped up and started just really concentrating on writing better music, not just writing a song, release, song, release. It was, we need to now really think about what it is the content of what we're releasing and it made me really take a step back and be like right what am I actually saying within this song I'm not just going to write a load of lyrics and just bang it out on the page it actually has to have some sort of message some sort of meaning and yeah after turn out the lights you can really see that is what happens because that's when like you know like big city and all the more sort of deeper songs come into it like you said, after those two EPs, you've definitely taken your sound in new directions. I think your tracks Big City and I've Been Missing You are shiny examples of that. The shiny guitar riffs and pianos are still there, but I think your songwriting has improved significantly. You've started to implement more pounding bass lines and drum beats. And your vocals, I think, have much more R&B and gospel influences too. How do you think you've evolved as a band since those last two EPs? And then if you want to talk about Craving as well, which is your latest single. Yeah, we've hugely evolved. It's almost like you say, with the, still the elements of the, like Simon's guitar and my voice is a thing that's been throughout. So like that you can recognise it's the same band. So there is still that element of the earlier stuff. But I would say we're just, it's just a level up in maturity. I've said this in another interview I've done that we've grown up through this band. Like I think me and Simon met, I was 18, he was 19. And he's now 26 and I'm now 25. So we've grown up. As Victor's has been going, we've been growing up as human beings. You can really hear that, I think, in our music. It's just so much more mature. Yeah, and I've sort of, in the last year or so, discovered myself more as a pianist. Piano was actually my first instrument, but then going into my teens, it was I much more became like a guitarist and like singing with a guitar. Yeah, and it was cooler, you know. It was what everybody in a band does. Over the last year, I never had a piano on stage. I now have a full digital piano on stage with me. I sit down and I have two mics set up so I can sit down and sing whilst playing guitar. That's examples of like Big City, I do that. Craving, I do that. The reason we've evolved as well is just because our music taste has changed. I used to sit there in my car, I would be listening to 1975 over and over and over again. And, and that is why that came out. Whereas now, like, yeah, I don't listen to 1975 much anymore. Like, it's just because get into other things and like you mentioned i've been missing you simon is a huge fan of hon and now you listen to hon and then listen to i've been missing you there's real big influence from hon's kind of style and that's because simon was really into hon at the time they use a female vocalist and that's why we got a female vocalist in it was just it's just influences and uh craving it's the only song that's not in four four time it's in six eight time and that's because I was listening to uh, Pink and White by Frank Ocean and that is in that time signature and I was like, let's write a song that's a little bit different. It's not quite as poppy. It's not quite as pounding bass, foot on the floor kind of thing, but it's a different element and that's why it's a different way of telling a story. It brings a different vibe to it. We call it the, <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, but we call it like the sex time signature because it's, it's a sexy sort of feel to it with the way it moves. We've just grown up. 
Which outlet out of producing, playing instrument, singing or songwriting has the biggest impact on your mental health, do you think? It's a tough one. They all have an impact. Every single one has a different effect. So like writing, when I'm in a room with Simon writing a song and something's clicking and we found it and it's working and it's building and it's building and that's the producing side of it and the writing side of it. It's a buzz similar to the endorphin rush you get when you come off stage, but it's different. It's more internal and it's not you're not like hyped, but it's like, I don't know, I can't really put it into words. It's beyond words, the feeling you get when you're writing a song. It sounds so artsy-fartsy what I'm saying right now, but it is true. It's like, it is like when you're writing a song and you're creating something, it's amazing and you, and you just want to do more and more and more. So there's that, and then there's the playing, which is just the full endorphin rush of just hype, and there's people, and being on stage with four guys, and you're all working in unison, and it's just, and it works perfectly. There's nothing like that. And then there's the producing side, where you sat down in a room, maybe you've got a producer in, and they've got their views, and you're working with somebody else this time, and it's a more, and you can hear your song going from a demo to a fully produced song. It's another kind of feeling. All three of them give me a sense of purpose, I'd say, and for my mental health. Like, it's not something that anyone can do. Like, the amount of times I've heard people and I've been chatting to people and they're just saying, like, I don't understand how you can write a song. It's like, well, yeah, but I don't understand how you can do your job. All of them give me a sense of purpose because it's just all I've been wanting to do since I was little. Like, so without it, I was having this thought last night, actually. I was like, I actually don't know what else I would be doing. Yeah, I could say I went, I could... I go to uni and study history or something because I like history, but it's not my purpose. It doesn't feel like it would be my thing. But yeah, and it's just something that's come naturally to me, the producing, the writing, the playing. It always has done, always. It's never been a thing that I've had to think about in a sense. Don't get me wrong, I still get writer's block. Like During the first lockdown, I didn't touch a piano for like two months and had serious writer's block I couldn't like we we knew we want we needed to write an EP we'd had a chat with our label and stuff and they were saying like right yeah we need to have a body of work and we, so I was like really in the mode of trying to write and I just couldn't nothing was coming I still get that it does come naturally to me but I still have problems just like anybody else does but yeah I would say all of them give me a sense of purpose doing Victor's for as long as you have mate what has it taught you about yourself do you think what I've found about myself is resilience that I didn't know I had because the dream is when you start a band that it works in a year and boom you're famous and boom you're playing to thousands of people and that does happen it's very rare but like look at Post Malone look at these artists that are my age and younger and it does happen overnight it can do but it's very very rare when you set out and you're 18 and you form this band and you're like yeah we're gonna be big in a couple of years we're gonna smash this and then we're from when we formed, not from when we released, but from when we formed about six or seven years ago, you know, like yeah, maybe six years ago, we released about four years ago. It has been a struggle. Nobody says it's easy, but you, you find there are so many things that go wrong or don't go your way or what have you. And it's like, so examples of that being people leaving the band. The guy I actually started the band with originally left. And then we got another drummer in and then he left because he didn't want to do it anymore. And immediately when they tell you they're leaving immediately your initial reaction is like oh god how are we going to get through this but you do every time i think after our second drummer left we had a new drummer within 48 hours i mean it it can be that quick the resilience of stuff just not going your way it's not easy what i found is that you get offered loads of things somebody will come to you emailing you saying like i want to do this this and this and early on you believe it and you're like "Yeah, yeah yeah and you get really hyped and then nothing comes of it and that happens so much in the music industry. Like just an, an example of that is we were meant to be going to the US this year to play. Our main fan base, most of our fans are American. We have fans in the UK, but most of it is in America or in Asia somewhere. I think it's Taiwan, I think. So we were meant to be going to the US. We, we were meant to be going to Vegas in, the, in January, February time. And then we were meant to go back again a couple of months after that. I'd had calls and meetings with an American manager and we were meant to we were sorting a tour with have you heard of 90s kids we were in talks to be doing a tour with them in September October 2020 so all that was supposed to be happening yeah it's huge getting over to America and playing to the people that are actually our fans and that didn't happen you know like that obviously unrelated like COVID not your fault and nobody could have predicted it so it's not it's not like you've let yourself down or you weren't good enough but it hasn't happened but we're still carrying on, you know, we're just continuing. I'd say what I found out most about myself through Victor's is the resilience, is the, like I said before, the show must go on, keep plowing along because 
the people that quit are the ones that don't make it. I could quit, but it's definitely not going to happen then. Like trying to make a living out of it and trying to become successful and stuff. Me and Simon have said we're not stopping till it works. I'd say that's what I found out about myself, which is a great character trait to have, I think. We talk victors. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, Harry. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So tell me about your early life and childhood and teenagers growing up in Leeds. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? Who's the Harry we meet here? Pretty much, I would say I've had the perfect ideal childhood. Both parents together, great family unit. Just me, my mum and dad, my sister. Got a big family that we're very, very close with. We'd have like big Christmases. And you know what I mean? Like we we were super tight as a family. Lived in a great town, like a, a suburb of Leeds called Geisley. It like has everything. Like it's like one stop on the train to the city centre of Leeds, and just basically what what any like yeah good schools and like what anybody would want growing up is basically what I had, and it's it, I'm very grateful for that. Been very lucky to not have had any mental health issues that I can pinpoint from an early age. I think I would say yeah, I was a pretty happy kid to teenager. Not saying I'm a depressed adult, but like what? But I mean, like when you're younger, yeah, I can't really pinpoint anything to be honest. I did, I, I enjoyed school as much as anybody else could. I'm quite popular. I was in the rugby team. Yeah, I can't really fault my childhood. I'm very lucky having met with the people you meet as you get older and stuff, and you hear their childhood, and you're like, wow, I, I was very lucky to have such a strong network basically you know like a strong family network and friends and coming from a great place really it was when you got to 18 and had to leave school that you encountered the bulk of your mental health difficulties as you said you didn't encounter a lot but the ones that you did were in this period your schoolmates all went off to uni as was the be all and end all uni culture that we grew up in I guess and we experienced it happened a lot in London where I grew up in northeast whilst you decided to defer uni and give music a go at the last minute Just tell me about this period of your life and how you felt. Would it be fair to say that this was a trigger point for FOMO or fear of missing out to begin developing in your mind? Yeah, we mentioned that earlier a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We said that, yeah, the post-school time, it's when I was really thinking, like, is this what I want to do? Because like I said before, with the purpose thing, everybody had a purpose. You know, everybody was, everybody's going to uni or which a lot of my friends have also done is like gone into apprenticeships and stuff like that but it's a similar kind of thing going into carrying on with education and having something to aim for whereas I had this sort of unknown yeah I knew I wanted to be in a band but being a musician isn't exactly the most secure career choice is it let's be honest anything in the arts isn't you know because there's not you're not guaranteed money ever (laughs) or straight away you know and you can have ups and downs with art like whether it's popular or not and like you said the FOMO yeah because everybody's often you hear so much about having the student lifestyle yeah you're studying and stuff you don't hear much about that you hear about the the nights out and meeting all these different people from all across the country and stuff and suddenly your mates have got new mates and all this kind of stuff and I got involved with that I went to see a couple of friends at uni several times you know and going on nights out with them and stuff but yeah you do feel like you're full of self-doubt because it's the start, the complete unknown, and potentially always will be unknown. And yeah, that would be the start. It's just because you're in the big world suddenly. You're not in school. It's not as It doesn't feel as secure, you know? And of course, yeah, that's going to affect your mental health. You moved out your parents and in with your bandmate shortly after school finished. Did that help with the FOMO in giving you greater independence, more drive and kind of separation, I guess, from your school life? Or was that FOMO still lingering? I would definitely say that that really helped. Going back to that same word again, it really felt like I was doing something and gave me a purpose. It was like, right, I'm moving forward. Like, because all your friends have moved, like a lot of your friends have moved out. Even though like looking back, like it's not really moving out because you've just gone to uni and you'll most likely come back. But it's like, at the time you do feel like, oh, I'm still living with my mum and dad. And a lot of my friends aren't. Or they are, but they've all got these apprenticeships or getting these really well-paid jobs now and stuff like that. And it really gave me a sense of a purpose and going forward. And yeah, like you're living with your mate. Who the hell doesn't want to do that? You know, like you're living with one of your best friends. And I did it for a writing point of view because we could be together at all times, writing constantly. I felt older, you know. You felt more grown up because you're learning to look after yourself and no longer you got... 
got your mum doing your washing and it enhanced my creativity and yeah a hundred percent that got rid of the FOMO because I was I was suddenly doing my own thing it wasn't just I was living at home I was an adult paying rent living with my friend you know it gave me I'm actually moving forward with my life and Victor's you know I guess there's a wider discussion to be had here about school options or the lack of options they gave us when it came to life going forward. Given your musical talent, you told me off air, you weren't even aware you could go to music college and hone your skills to use in the real world and when it came to Victor's and the band. Back then, I'm sure most of us were told that music colleges were a DOS or places that less intelligent people, in inverted commas, went if they messed up their AS or A-levels. Did you feel that stigma or lack of education around education? And do you think music college would have helped you looking back? Thinking back now to what I said, I probably was aware that you could go to music college, but it was never really pushed in front of me as a full proper option. I, think, I remember my mum mentioning it. I remember my mum saying like, oh, you do this, you could do this. But at that time, annoyingly, I wasn't into like looking into more of the production side of it and learning how to produce music and stuff. I probably was aware, but it was never really pushed as a proper, proper option that I could do, which like we said before, whereas all it is pushed into you is uni. Uni, 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 uni at that point, isn't it? Like, got to go to uni, got to get the grades to go to uni. Which uni? What's your first choice? What's your second choice? For the second year of sixth form, that's all you hear, isn't it? Like, it's just, that's all it is. Which is fair, you're trying to get the grades and you're at sixth form, so the natural next step is uni. And that is right for some people. But then again, I would probably flip that and say that I was always very cautious to not make my passion become something that I was just studying. I didn't ever really feel the pull to go into music college and then suddenly I would be studying music. and It would be homework, it would be coursework. I always wanted it to keep it as a passion and coming through me and something creative, not necessarily studying and making notes and all this kind of stuff. I wanted it to continue it being a sort of natural I didn't want it to lose its magic in a sense, which, which can happen. Like just as an example, I love history. I love reading history books. I love history documentaries. I've always been obsessed with history and kings and queens and all this kind of stuff and learn about that. But I would hate to write essays on it. That doesn't interest me. I, I hate the idea of having to form arguments and the political and economic situations and arguments. stuff like that. It is interesting, but I don't want to write an essay about it. You know, I want to just learn it. And it's a similar with music. I, I, I was very keen for it to not become a chore, which I think could have happened if I'd gone to study it at, say, like music college or something like, or at university or something. I, I didn't want it to not be my passion anymore because it'd become a chore. One final thing I thought would be quite interesting to talk about, mate, is how mental health affects different subcultures or regions or localities. So for this pod, Yorkshire, I don't want to generalise and just say the North. A lot of people might think the gruff male northerner, in inverted commas, stereotype might play its way into a lot of people's ideas about toxic masculinity. And that might be true in certain cases, but you had a different take on it, Harry, didn't you? Up here, there's a big sort of thing is like down south, nobody talks to each other in the street and nobody looks each other in the eye. You could flip it and say like, well, it's friendlier up here, even though we're given the stereotype of the gruff northerner. It's grim up north kind of thing which it's not. It's the best place on earth. When you get older, you do realise that these stereotypes are exactly that. They're just stereotypes. And a lot of the time, it's just bullshit. We're just people. We're just from different parts of the country. You know, we're different. We talk different. That's basically all it is. We speak the same language. We just sound a bit different. I come from very open friendships. You know, we've always been, we've always talked. Maybe when we're in our teens, it's a bit sort of, you know, because you're all growing up in teens, you don't understand there can be bits of like bullying and homophobia and stuff. But you're growing up, you don't understand that. You don't understand that's wrong or you don't even know what you're taking the mick out of half the time. But no, as growing up, me and my friends have always been pretty open, hearts on our sleeves kind of guys. I don't know if anybody if anybody who knows us but isn't in our friendship group might say different. But very much being in my friendship group, yeah, we're very open. We've always talked about our feelings and stuff. There's never been any really toxic masculinity. There's been banter. It's not harmful. You know, it really isn't. And we've always been open. Like, just an example, I actually wrote this down because I knew what we were going to sort of be talking about and I saw that this would be a topic. And just as I was looking at it, my mate messaged the group chat just saying, just checking in, how's everybody doing? Because we're in such a weird time. 
he just said, this is me just checking up. How's everybody doing? How's everybody feeling? Because like, I'm not working at the minute. I'm not doing anything. Everybody's in lockdown. And yeah, so he was just checking in. So just an example of we're very open. There's no, in my group especially, there's no toxic man stuff. It's just bullshit. Our final topic of conversation, Harry, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include circumstances or exclude them, given that we are in a second lockdown or the end of it as time of recording. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Right now, it's been good. It really has, despite being locked down and quarantine and not being able to do your normal going out and gigging and playing shows kind of thing. But like I've mentioned before, I've moved house, new part of town, new people, new environment. It's made such a weird time a lot more manageable because of just the new new environment. I'm stimulated, you know, like I can go out and walk everywhere. I can, I'm in walking distance from everything now. I can walk to my girlfriend's house if I really wanted to, you know. it's Yeah, right now, mental health is, I'm in a good place at the moment. Good stuff. What age do you think you were when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical when it came to your mental health and they were actually in your mind? Yeah, that's a tough one, that, isn't it? Because like, anxiety and stuff like that can have so many different forms. It can be physical. Some people have no idea what you're talking about when you say that you had a physical like thing. People just don't get it. People don't understand because they, they haven't had it. But then their anxiety might manifest itself in a different way or be it like social anxiety or anything like that. Like I'm not really sure when I figured it out. But like over the last couple of years or a year or so, I've suffered from mild anxiety. I call them waves anxiety waves because I have just like these sudden bursts of anxiety or worry for about two to five minutes and it can be bad like sometimes it's like oh my god I'm like my heart's pounding and stuff like oh my god I'm gonna die <laughs> like it's like this is horrible but then it just drains and goes away and I've spoken to a few people they don't have that but for, that's just how it manifests itself in me it's little waves of just two to five minutes of hell and then it just slowly goes away it's, it's such a difficult one because it, it's, it's different to every single person and what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So this could be things people might say to you, sounds, sensations, social environments, and they can be positive triggers as well as negative ones. Again, I've been very lucky that I don't necessarily have, I don't, oh, not that I've identified myself, but I don't really have these triggers. My girlfriend suffers from anxiety and depression and one of her triggers is fire alarms real intense noises can affect her but I don't have any of that really and she's also told me so do you know like when you switch on a light some there's like different kinds of light you can have like a sort of warm looking light or you can have like white lights white lights are triggers for her no real reason behind that just that's the way it is I don't really have that I don't know what it is for me it can be triggered maybe from a Possibly from when I'm like watching a show and something super, super relates to me. Like a year or so ago, somebody close to me was going through one of their hardest times of their life, going through cancer. And often if something comes up like that on a TV show or something, it can then bring me back to that time, obviously. But I'm sure that happens to anyone. Tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. Who was it with? What did you say? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment? or something insignificant and fairly normalised? The first proper time I can really remember of actually having a conversation and talking about it is about a, yeah, mate, when was it, about a year ago? Yeah, I think it was about a year ago. I saw a therapist for a bit, just for like a month or two. And it was just, it wasn't for anything in massively in particular. It was just more because the person who was close to me was going through what they were going through. My own issues had sort of been put on the back burner, rightly so, because that person's going through something terrible. But I hadn't talked about myself for a long, long time. So I went to a therapist and talked about that. And it was just the act of talking. And you say, was it a big moment or not? I'd say not really. For, well, it was a big moment going into that person's home. And I am seeing a therapist because you see it on movies all the time. And it's sort of normalised in films and stuff. You know, American films, they, like, apparently everybody has a shrink. But I think that's a good thing. I think everybody needs some sort of therapy every now and then, whether it be just talking, whether it be medical, like actually taking medication, whether it just be talking to people. I would say it was a big thing to walk in and start talking to someone I didn't know about it, but also very normalised because I've had family members who have suffered from mental health issues and like my mum had a real problem with anxiety for a bit. And so we've always been quite an open family of talking about it. I've been very aware of it. But no, I think it's normalised and I think a lot of TV has to do with that as well. Because like I've said, 
in American shows, everybody seems to have a shrink or see a therapist or whatever. It's just the act of talking, I think, is the most important factor with mental health. It's just the idea of like saying it out loud to somebody else. You're no longer just in your head. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Harry, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones you've tried but haven't? Obviously, for me, the obvious answer would be music and writing lyrics, like I've mentioned before, but I'm not going to repeat myself with that. Another one was I did try meditation for a while, which I found really did work. And before I got into meditation, I was like, how the hell do you meditate? I'm not some guru who knows what they're doing there's apps isn't there on your phone like there's a i think the one i use was headspace which is great because you can literally put to the time of how long you want to meditate for they can take you through a course where you just it slowly ups the time and they, and it's just a, a male or a female's voice talking you through it's just like yeah guided meditation basically i found that really helped first started off with five minutes and you just sat closed eyes and it's just concentrating on your breathing and taking your mind and like emptying your mind basically and I can remember I really got to a, that you know you hear about people saying that they had sort of almost psychedelic experiences from meditating I'm not saying I got to that point because I wasn't that deep into it but like I was into it I think I got to about 20 minutes of meditating at a time and I can remember at one point it's very clever how the voice when it's guiding you through will just suddenly disappear and won't speak for like a minute or two and suddenly you're meditating by yourself and you don't realize that because it's just been so gradual and I can remember like I was just so at peace that then when the voice came back in it made me jump you know what I mean like I was just so in the zone so that really helped I've got out of it I said I said to myself I was going to get back into it this lockdown and I haven't done it once you know but you can't beat yourself up about having plans and not sticking to them another one is uh, I found have you heard of Matt Haig an amazing author I've read a couple of his books now. The first one I read was Reasons to Stay Alive. Fantastic book. I read that and I was like, wow. And it really puts into perspective of what that man went through. Everybody's different and everybody deals with things in different ways, but that guy really went through it. But I love how honest he is in his books and how easy it is to read. And it's so unconventional of how a book's laid out. Like suddenly there'll be a chapter and the chapter's two lines long. Do you know what I mean? And it's just so easy to digest. And yeah, I, so the, there's that book. I read his most recent book, The Midnight Library. That's a brilliant book. In really quite an odd idea, but it's really, really great. Follow him on Twitter. He's just, yeah, he's sort of, for me, he's just become like the mental health guru really knows his stuff and really helps his tweets are always about helping people always about how to improve yourself and I saw one of his tweets that said exercise he said he could feel his depression coming back and he went out and this was during the first lockdown and he went out into his garden and ran half a marathon just round his garden he just literally ran round his garden for 12 miles that's about right 12 and a half 30 miles an hour in doing that he'd outran his demons kind of thing so i find that yeah doing exercise you always you always feel good after exercise you know and it, it, that can help i've tried that i haven't really had any things that i've tried and haven't worked if i'm honest those are the big ones the, the meditation getting into an author who really knows his stuff and exercise those have been the three big ones for me we talked a bit about toxic masculinity already, Harry. I want to talk about positive masculinity, which I discuss a lot on the podcast. And hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, masculinity will just be positive masculinity and toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-confidence? Is it self-awareness? Is it empathy? Is it supporting others? What can you tell me here? I'd say, yeah, in uh, supporting others and empathy and stuff and, and just being able to be open with another guy and like sort of be rid of this sort of the classic man up sort of mentality, which is just complete bullshit. One example that has been of like recent times has been the bromance thing, which I think is great. The first example I ever really had of like a bromance is Scrubs, you know, with JD and Turk. And I listen to their podcast now that they have. They're the exact example, I think, of how men can have positive masculinity because they're straight guys. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not like they're in love or anything like that, but it's just the idea of being able to be so open with another guy and just being able to show love to another guy. It doesn't have to be like men can be men and aren't allowed to be deep with one another. And I'd say, yeah, Scrubs was one of the first examples I was aware of showing that bromance thing. And just finally, Harry, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? 
that's a tough one. Again, it goes back to just ridding yourself of that embedded man up thing. It's like been instilled into it that it's not manly or tough to talk about how you feel. And there's a tag going around, started in Leeds, I think. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called, it's called Talk More. It's like a graffiti tag. And it started in Leeds. It's like it manifests itself in like it's two faces facing each other with a love heart over the top. And it just says Talk More. And, it, and it's tagged all around Leeds. And I think it's now spread. And it's exactly that. It just means Talk More. And I think that's just what men need to do. It's, it's become almost a cliche, hasn't it? Because of the just talk, because that's all that's. But it's so true. It's so the answer. It really is. Like I said before, it stops it from just being suddenly your issue and it's now out there with somebody else and they can talk to you about it and it doesn't even really matter what you're saying if it's deep or not and it doesn't even really matter what they reply with it's just the it's just the act of talking is the main thing well i think that's all we've got time for on this edition of behind the mic i want to say a big thank you to harry from victors for being my special guest and letting me go behind the mic with him my favorite victor's track slow down will play us out and i'll put all victor's streaming and social media links in the show notes as always thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in remember if you've liked what you've heard please give us a share on all the usual social media channels tell your friends or maybe work colleagues about it or if you're feeling generous write us a review on apple Podcasts. it'll really help us in the algorithms stay tuned for the next episode of behind the mic and remember you it's know, always it okay have to, be to a vent dramatic line.